afternoon and welcome to the Catholic Opinion. My name is Father Anthony Simich, priest of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter. And let's begin today's show with a prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit and they shall be created and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Amen. Let us pray. O God, who taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant that by the gift of the same Spirit we may be always truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. As I said, my name is Father Anthony Simich, uh, priest of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter, a traditional Latin Mass community with our apostolate based here in Auckland, New Zealand. We are at St. Anne's Chapel out in Te Aratu South and... Uh, in West Auckland, and if you are in Auckland, you are welcome to come out and join us at any time. Unfortunately, with the current restrictions in New Zealand, where there's only a small number of people who can uh, come to church, but we're hoping this will be lifted shortly. And um, in fact, tonight we'll see what time, the, if the government are going to change those restrictions. So these things are day by day, as we all realise now. But uh, that having been said, you can keep an eye on um, the restrictions with regards to our church and what we're going to be doing with them in our chapel on our website, which is fssp.nz. So FSSP, standing for the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter, .nz for New Zealand, or our Facebook page, FSSP Auckland. So uh, you're welcome to have a look at those things and see what our program is with regards to Mass times. Confessions are always before every Mass. And also uh, to once again, as I have over the last couple of weeks, remind everybody that um, providing we do have enough uh, allowance from the government, if restrictions are completely lifted, of course, there is no problem. But on the 3rd of October this year, we will be having the priestly ordination in the traditional uh, right of Deacon Roger Gilbride to the priesthood and also Mr. Brennan Boyce will be ordained a transitory deacon uh, also for the Fraternity of St. Peter and those uh, two events are taking place in the same Mass uh, and the officiating prelate for that will be Bishop Dennis Brown the Bishop Emeritus of the Hamilton Diocese and uh, that Mass will be at St. Ben, St. Benedict's Parish in Newton in Auckland at 10.30 in the morning. And there is de- there, are, there are details about that on the Facebook page and also on the website. So between now and then, we're exactly one month away or just outside one month away to that ordination. Uh, we ask you to keep these men in your prayers um, as the church, of course, needs so many more priests and holy priests and priests are celebrating the Latin Mass. It's a great honour to priestly fraternity of saint peter to have this event coming up and for that ordination here in new zealand so particularly um entrust these prayers to the blessed virgin mary september is a month obviously very dear to the blessed virgin mary we have the nativity coming up now next tuesday the 8th the feast of the nativity of blessed virgin mary and the most holy name of mary coming up the following saturday the 12th and of course there are other marian masses this month as well the 15th of september is the seven sorrows of the Blessed Virgin Mary and last but not least there is Our Lady under the title of um, Our Lady of Mercy on the 24th uh, of this month before we get uh, the great feasts of St. Michael and St. Jerome at the end of the month. So the feast will take place on the 3rd of October, the the Mass, sorry, the ordination will take place on the 3rd of October which is the feast of St. Teresa the Child, Jesus and Holy Face. 
the pre- premier patroness of the missions and since New Zealand is mission territory that becomes a major feast in New Zealand of first class mass so you're all invited providing there are no government restrictions on numbers you're all invited along to that ordination at St Ben's in Auckland on Saturday the 3rd of October at 10.30am so uh on this uh, show over the last few years, we have been talking about the history of the Catholic Church and the last months or last month or so, we have been particularly walking our way through the magnificent 13th century, the climax of the height of the, 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 the great age of Christendom in Europe as Catholicism had some very good and holy popes and great teachers and doctors of the church, specifically St. Thomas Aquinas, and last week, if you were with us, we uh, talked about the deadlock that was going on. There was this constant toing and froing between the papacy and the emperors of Europe, the, of the German emperors of Europe, and the distrust that had broken out over a couple of centuries between these two um, particular heads, and the constant toing and froing uh, that had gone on at. The point that we left off last week, there had been the question over the kingdom of Sicily in southern Italy. Now, Italy as a country didn't exist at this time. It was a a series of fiefdoms, kingdoms, the papal states, of course, uh, were were its own country and encompassed a lot of the central part of Italy. We spoke last week about the particular deadlock um, as to the conclave for electing the next pope um, as... Uh, as usual, there was a lot of politicking going on with powerful men wanting a Pope helping their own particular causes. And this was no different, um, unfortunately, in this year of 1263. So after the deadlock that had continued for four months, the Cardinals chose two of their number to make the election alone. The pair chose Cardinal Fulcordi, who had been the legate that Pope Urban IV had sent to England, who had been unable to get into the country, but the same legate, legate who had excommunicated its current leaders, but had stayed in France in pursuance of his mission, and so he was not at the conclave. Um, Cardinal Foucaulti took as his papal name Clement IV, because he had been born on the feast of Pope St. Clement. He was a Frenchman from Provence in the south of France. He was the son of a lawyer of distinguished career who had died a Carthusian monk. His father had entered the Carthusian order late in his life and died um, a holy monk. Um, Cardinal Foucault had served uh, King Louis Louis IX, who was later to become St. Louis IX, as one of the most trusted counsellors and was famed for a great sense of justice that he had. Of Pope Clement IV's high principles, devotion to duty and humility, there could be no doubt. They were all clearly manifested in a letter that he wrote to his nephew shortly after his election as Pope, in which he made it very clear that his relatives could expect no favours from him as Pope. Clement IV's past experience had placed him firmly in support of Charles of Anjou as the King of Sicily and Southern Italy, and in support of King Henry III of England against Simon de Montfort and his associates who were pushing for a reform of English law with regards to the role of the king and the governance of the country. We've been speaking about that, of course, in the last few weeks. Just four days after his consecration to the papacy, he confirmed 
the award of Sicily to Charles of Anjou, subject to 35 conditions, essentially those already agreed on uh, in the 1263 agreement. On Holy Thursday in 1265, he solemnly renewed his excommunication of Simon de Montfort and his chief associates among the barons of England. And in May, he sent Cardinal Ottobuoni Fieschi as his successor as legate to England, authorising him to support Henry III by every means, including preaching a crusade against the nobles. Decisive action followed quickly from these papal confirmations. On May 10th, Charles of Anjou set sail for Rome, where he enthusiastic, was enthusiastically welcomed. Manfred, the um, Emperor of Europe, responded with a magniloquent proclamation in which he declared himself Lord of the World and said he would come to Rome to restore the Roman Empire and break the temporal power of the Pope. Interesting. On June 28, four cardinals, specially accredited by Pope Clement IV, invested Charles with the Kingdom of Sicily and declared him the leader of a crusade against Manfred. On July 10th, Peter de Vico, formerly one of Manfred's leading generals, made his peace with the church, renounced Manfred, swore allegiance to the Papal State and took service under Charles. A few days later, the former head of the Ghibellines in Rome did likewise. In early October, Charles's army, 26,000 strong, marched from Lyon towards Italy, arriving in Milan the next month. Meanwhile, in England, the young Earl of Gloucester abandoned Simon de Montfort as his father had done, and Prince Edward escaped from the custody of Simon's son Henry and joined Gloucester. Simon had to turn to Clewellyn of Wales for an army sufficient to fight these formidable foes, but Prince Edward's brilliant generalship along the Severn River led to a double victory, first over the army of Simon's son and namesake near Kenilworth, then against Simon himself at Eversham. Simon died fighting as his father had done. His body was shamefully mutilated and refused burial in consecrated ground because of his excommunication. Simon de Montfort was always personally devout. However, mistaken his course of action during the last tragic year of his life, he combined personal integrity and political imagination and foresight to an extraordinary degree. He retained many admirers in England, then and since, and not without reason. Pope Clement IV never relented towards Simon. But he counselled Henry III and Prince Edward in a series of strongly worded letters against the vengeful attitude they displayed in victory. The victory of Charles of Anjou over Manfred was no less complete. Manfred did not dare challenge his grim, relentless opponent at the border of his kingdom and retreated steadily from him. Charles pressed on until he caught up with Manfred near Benevento in late February of 1266. A message sent to his opponent just before the battle was typical of Charles, referring to the Muslim soldiers from the colony which Frederick II had established at Lucerna in Italy. Charles said, quote, Go and tell the Sultan of Lucerna that this day I will send him to hell or he shall send me to heaven, unquote. The heavily armoured German cavalry which Manfred had believed invincible were not so. 3,000 of the 3,600 of them present were slain on the battlefield because Charles gave no quarter even to the wounded and Manfred died in their midst. 
Pope Clement IV, perhaps remembering what had been done to Simon de Montfort's body, ordered an honourable burial for Manfred, even though, like Simon, he had been excommunicated and was not allowed burial in consecrated ground. The French prince was now the universally recognised king of Sicily and southern Italy. There was an epilogue to Charles' victory, the last chapter in the sad history of the fall of the Hohenstaufen dynasty. Frederick II's only grandson, Conrad IV's son, known as Conradin, 14 at the time of Manfred's defeat and death, was encouraged by ambitious German nobles and die-hard Italian ghibellines to try to regain control of his ancestral realm. Charles's blunt and overbearing nature and his foreign origin had angered many Italians in and out of his newly acquired kingdom. When Conradine left Germany in September of 1267 with only 4,000 cavalry, he picked up substantial support in Italy. Clement IV excommunicated him in November for aggression against Sicily, which was a papal vassal kingdom, and within two months, Two of the most important of his German commanders, Duke Louis of Bavaria and Count Rudolf of Habsburg, had left him and returned home, very likely because of the excommunication. But Conradin persevered and continued to gain Italian support. In June of 1268, his army defeated that of Charles at a bridge on the Arno River in Tuscany, and in July he made a triumphal entry into Rome. Nevertheless, Pope Clement IV and Charles of Anjou stood fast, and on August 23rd, Charles, with brilliant generalship, totally defeated his young challenger at the Battle of Tagliacozzo. Conradin was captured near Rome and Charles, rejecting all pleas for clemency, executed him. So much for a Christian attitude. In September of 1265, the Dominican provincial chapter for Rome met at Agnagni, and decided to establish a new centre for the study of theology, scripture and philosophy by young Dominicans at Santa Sabina on the Avertine Hill in Rome. They designated Thomas Aquinas to found and to direct it, and he taught there through the next two academic years. His absorption in the needs, questions and responses of his students, and it should always be remembered, as his inaugural lecture as the master at the University of Paris quoted <coughs> earlier, clearly shows Thomas Aquinas was above all, first and foremost, a teacher. Led Thomas to envisage and begin to put on paper his supreme work, the Summa Theologiae, as a guide for students beginning advanced work in theology. It was at Santa Sabina that Thomas wrote, in question three of the Summa Theologiae, probably the best known of all his expositions, the arguments for the existence of God. He outlines the five arguments from the existence of change, from the necessity of a first cause, from the necessity of an eternal being as the source of all existence, from the existence of gradations requiring an ultimate perfection, and from the order of nature. They are powerful and sound. But most men respond poorly and inadequately to logical argument, especially in the 21st century, sadly enough. And some respond hardly at all, and that's probably more like us in our day and age. Thomas Aquinas's whole intellectual life was lived amid logical argument. But he well knew the sad truth about his fellow men, a consequence 
of the exile from the Garden of Eden. On the introduction to question three, he speaks past this habitual or willful blinding of the mind to every age, and especially to us in the 21st century. We may hear the voice of the 21st century even more than that of the 13th in the objections that set his stage. The answer as God gave it to Moses rings from Sinai unto eternity. Because in the last analysis, there is no other. And it is the heart and soul of the teaching of the common doctor, of God in whom alone existence and essence are one. And I quote St. Thomas Aquinas. It seems that there is no God. For if of two mutually exclusive things, one were to exist without limit, the other would cease to exist. But by the word God is implied some limitless good. If God then existed, nobody would ever encounter evil. But evil is encountered in the world. God, therefore, does not exist. Moreover, if a few causes fully account for some effect, one does not seek more. Now, it seems that everything we observe in this world can be fully accounted for by other causes without assuming a God. Thus, natural effects are explained by natural causes and contrived effects by human reasoning and will. Therefore, there is therefore no need to suppose that a God exists. But he answers it. On the other hand, Scripture represents God as declaring, I am who am. Unquote. Thomas Aquinas. At the Dominican General Chapter, beginning at Bologna in June of 1267, it was decided once again to assign Thomas Aquinas to the priory at the Papal Court, which Clement IV held at Viterbo, which he had made his residence not far from Rome, but far enough to be secure from its endless unrest. Thomas stayed in Viterbo a year and a half, living and working with the great translator of Aristotle, William of Mergbeke. This new impetus in his lifelong study of Aristotle led to his undertaking the 12 extraordinary commentaries on Aristotle's major books, which he wrote simultaneously together with the Summa Theologiae during the next six years. A new outbreak of the anti-mendicant controversy at the University of Paris may have been an important cause of the sudden decision of the Dominican Minister-General John of Vercelli to send Thomas Aquinas back to Paris in November of 1268. Travelling through Lombardy, Thomas delivered Sunday Advent sermons at Bologna and Milan. He crossed an Alpine pass at Christmas tide and arrived in Paris in midwinter to occupy once again one of the two Dominican chairs at the premier centre of learning in Christendom. Thomas Aquinas' biographer gives us an unforgettable picture of the saint and genius at the peak of his career. Quote, When Thomas and his companions entered the Port Saint-Jacques in the winter of 1268-69, the 44-year-old Thomas was, no doubt, cold and tired. 
but he was at the height of his physical stamina and intellectual vigour. He could not have imagined how productive the next four years would be or the price he would have to pay for his incredible output between 1269 and 1273. He was tall, well-built, somewhat large, and at that time beginning to grow bald, which was noticeable enough to be mentioned despite his monastic tonsure. He had a large head and always held himself erect as men of upright character do. His complexion was healthy like ripe wheat. His body had a delicate balance and texture that goes with a fine intelligence, yet virile also, robust and prompt to serve the will. Unquote. All eyes were on him as he took his place in Paris once again and he fulfilled all and more than anyone could have expected of him. During the next four years, he completed the writing of most of the Summa Theologiae as he had planned it, the commentaries on Aristotle, a magnificent series of lectures on the Gospel of John, detailed refutations of the critics of the mendicant orders and a memorable attack on the young master Sidur of Brabant, an admirer of the Muslim philosopher and Aristotelian commentator Averroes, whose doctrine in effect denied the individuality and therefore the immortality of the soul. The complexity of philosophical argument enabled Sidur and his fellow Latin Averroes to wend their way into heresy almost without knowing it, leading their students over the precipice by an abstract posturing intellectuality that became divorced from reality, the ancient trap of sophistry. The greatest mind in Christendom knew very well how this worked. And this man, who was a teacher above all, was shocked to his soul at seeing young minds perverted. If anyone wished to challenge his answer to Seger, the dumb ox, as Thomas was known, bellowed. Let him not speak in corners nor in the presence of boys who do not know how to judge about such different difficult matters, but let him write against this treatise if he has sufficient courage. Unquote. Thomas. On December 10 in 1270, Archbishop Stephen Tempier of Paris condemned 13 propositions of Latin Averroism as heretical. Six years later, Seger was called before the French Inquisition. He appealed to the Pope and was killed in Viterbo, stabbed by his almost demented assistant. It seemed Thomas Aquinas' mighty mind never rested. A famous story tells of the royal banquet held by Louis IX in Paris in the year 1269, at which the king insisted on seating Thomas beside him. Perhaps he remembered how he had once sent his royal archers to protect Thomas and his students on their way to class. Thomas was then writing a refutation of Manichaeism, and his mind was on it, to the exclusion of the king, to whom he did not address a word. Suddenly, he struck the long wooden table with a massive fist and a roar of, That settles the Manichaeans. He called for his secretary, who had not been invited to the royal gathering. St. Louis, never one to stand on offended dignity, hastened to summon his own secretary to take down Thomas's insight. What a magnificent scene. By that year of 1269, Pope Clement IV was dead. The conclave to elect his successor was again deadlocked between Guelph supporters and Ghibelline support opponents of Charles of Anjou, now properly called Charles, Charles I of Sicily. 
a deadlock which was to last more than two years. And King St. Louis IX of France had decided to undertake a crusade, which he fervently hoped would restore the tarnished crusading ideal and bring victory to a united Christendom at this historic moment of its climax. Pope Clement IV had given St. Louis' crusade his unqualified blessing before he died. Lewis had taken the cross on March 25, 1267, and Pope Clement V had sent many letters in support of his undertaking during 1268, the last year of his pontificate. In December of 1268, St. Louis concluded an agreement with Genoa to provide ships for the passage overseas of a crusading army he would command and had appointed Florent of Varennes his admiral. There was certainly a need for it, in March of 1268, Sultan Baybars of Egypt had taken Jaffa and Palestine and killing most of the people of that city and destroying its castle. And marching north a week after Easter, he took the Templar castle at Beaufort near Sidon, enslaving all the men he captured. Then he laid siege to Antioch, defended by Constable Simon Mansell in the absence of Bohemond VI, who was at Tripoli. Mansell led a rash sortie and was captured, and on May 18th, Baybars took, looted, and destroyed Antioch, seizing vast treasures and killing or enslaving all Christians he found there. This was the end of the 1,500-year-old history of Antioch, the ancient city never since recovered. The next year, the Baybars broke a truce with Hugh III, King of Cyprus and Jerusalem, and appeared before Acre with a substantial force. Though he was not then able to take Acre, Baybar's relentless hostility to the Christian presence in the Holy Land had been made very clear. He had the means and the resolution to bring an end to the Crusader states if aid from Western Christendom did not prevent him. King James I the conqueror of Aragon, now 60 years old but still very much the knight errant, had also taken the cross with an equal enthusiasm, if not quite, with the unyielding resolution of St. Louis IX. At Christmas of 1268, he met with his son-in-law, Alfonso X, the wise of Castile at the ancient Castilian capital of Toledo. Alfonso urged James not to trust in the help of the ferocious, though still non-Muslim Mongols in the Middle East as James was inclined to do, but offered him men and money for his crusade. Alfonso felt close to James at this time and grateful to him because James had done much to save him from the consequence of a Moorish rising in the reconquered parts of Andalusia in 1264, carefully and secretly planned by Muhammad al-Ahmar, the Red of Granada, the greatest Moorish lord remaining in the region, and aided by the Muslim Marinids of Morocco. The rebels had seized the important towns of Jerez de la Frontera, Acros de la, Fronte- de la Frontera and Medina Sidonia, but had failed to take the largest cities of Sevilla, Córdoba and Jaén. While in the past, Spanish kings had too often taken advantage of Moorish defeats of one of their rivals to advance their own parochial interests, James had committed himself at once to the full support of Alfonso, in regaining the lost cities and territories, exerting himself a considerable political cost to obtain funds for this purpose from the courts of Catalonia and through the Cortes of Aragon. And though the Cortes of Aragon turned him down, Pope Clement IV had called for a crusade in Spain against the resurgent Moors. 
By August of 1265, Alfonso had regained everything that he had lost in Andalusia. But Red Mohammed in Grenada continued to prove himself untrustworthy and treacherous. And the rebels held out in the province of Murcia, adjoining Granada, which had been a tributary to Castile. James had brought his army into action in November and by January of 1266 conquered Murcia. With an unselfish, extraordinary, unselfishness extraordinary in this age or any age, James had unhesitatingly turned the whole province back to Alfonso. Pope Clement IV warmly thanked James in June 1266 for all that he had done. So with an overview there of the things happening in Spain and what was happening in the Holy Land and that in southern Italy and the deadlock which had been broken in England and Germany, we'll call it uh, an end to our discourse for today. We have just over a minute uh, left of our show. So I'll just remind everybody about what I spoke about at the beginning of the show. Firstly, that is the ordination of the priesthood of Deacon Roger Gilbride on the 3rd of October at St. Benedict's Parish in Newton at 10.30am. You can find details about that on our website, fssp.nz, and also on our Facebook page, FSSP Auckland. So um, once again, everybody's welcome to come on out, providing the restrictions are lifted in the next couple of weeks. Come on out to our Latin Mass apostolate here in Tiaratu and um, join in with the Latin Mass community as we hold on to all things great and past from the past of our liturgical traditions. And let's conclude today's show with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. May God bless you all and keep you well over this weekend, and we hope to have you here next week.